0: You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. When we're not in the middle of an ongoing series, uh, it has been our custom at the beginning of the year to revisit a foundational teaching of Christianity. and In other words, go back to the basics. It just seems like it's a good time to do that. and We're going to do that over the next few weeks by taking a look at what is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Um, The word parable is from the Greek word parabole. It means basically to throw alongside. And so a a parable is a story or a a metaphorical story thrown alongside a biblical truth to help us more fully understand um, that biblical truth. This parable of Jesus is one of 30 that He tells in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of course, there's no parables in John. And of the 30, this is one of the most prominent. I'd put it in the, the top three. But that's not the reason that we are, that I've chosen to study this parable over the next month. Um, I've chosen it because it so vividly reveals the Gospel. It reveals the Gospel in a way, first of all, that helps a seeker see their need for the saving grace of God, but secondly, and even more importantly, it helps a seasoned Christian see the beauty of God's saving grace in a way that freshly motivates joyful obedience and following after the Lord. Some people uh, realize after going through this parable that they were not in fact saved and they become saved and others Uh, realize the grace of God in such a new way, they say, I I feel like I got born again all over again. And uh, so we're gonna spend the next few weeks doing that. The parable is about a father, of course, and two sons. And our approach to studying this will be first to look at the younger son this week, and then next week we'll look at the older son. And then after that, we're gonna come back for a couple weeks and do a, a much deeper dive in weeks three and four. Now, the parable of the prodigal son is found within a trilogy of parables in Luke 15. You have the parable of the lost sheep. The owner goes out, gets the sheep, comes home, rejoices. You have the parable of the lost coin. The woman in the house loses a coin. She goes about through the whole house, sweeping and cleaning until she finds the coin. And then you have this parable of a lost son. Begins in verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all, got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to a census, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, the older son was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat What a beautiful passage. Mm. You know, a story of um, a prodigal son is not an uncommon one and fills the pages of many novels and is the, the subject of, of many movies. And in a family, it is not unusual for the oldest sibling to be the responsible one, the one who obeys and all the rules and seeks out parental approval, wants to please his parents. It's also not unusual for the younger sibling to be the rebellious one, the free spirit who instead of seeking a parent's approval goes out to get the approval of their peers and that usually ends in disaster. And because this story is, is such a common one and, and most people are honestly quite familiar with this parable, there is a tendency when we start this today to assume I already know this been there done that but as is the case with all of scripture there is always another layer of the story that you have yet to see you know studying the bible is like peeling back an onion you think you've got it all and yet there is uh, another layer and when we carefully and prayerfully consider a passage of scripture even a well-known one like this there is There's that moment when you you say to yourself, and you know this has happened before, I never saw that before. And it's in those moments of realization um, where our understanding of God is deepened and our relationship is deepened with Him in a way that produces an increased joy and, and a renewed love for God. And we need that, don't we? We are in constant need of renewal in our lives. Now, the first thing we have to settle is the title, Uh, the title of this parable. And this, you know, the parable is almost always explained in a way that focuses on the departure and the return of the younger son, otherwise known as the prodigal, hence parable of the prodigal son. It's not a good name, not for this parable. It comes from faulty interpretation. Let Let me tell you why. If the main character of this parable was the younger son, then why include the older son at all? It would simply be enough, wouldn't it not, to say a a son rebelled against his father, left home, spent his inheritance, came to himself, returned home, repented, and was restored by the father. You don't need an older brother to tell that story. This parable is not a parable about one son. It is a parable about two sons. And there is a reason, and that reason becomes clear when you consider the audience that Jesus was speaking to. And you discover that back in the beginning of Luke 15 and verse 1. Notice with me, if you will. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, Jesus. But the Pharisees, who were also there and teachers of the law, muttered under their breath, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Then Jesus told this parable. So Jesus' audience, first of all, includes what? Two groups of people. You've got the tax collectors, the sinners, and then you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So the blatantly immoral of the day were called sinners, and the most egregious among them were the tax collectors. In contrast, on the other end of the moral spectrum, were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So the sinners here were like the younger son in the parable. Because they had left the traditional religious values of their parents and their families. They and adopted a foreign, immoral lifestyle. They rejected God's law, and they did whatever their flesh desired. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were like who? the older son in the parable because they held to the traditional fa- uh, values of the family and the morality of their upbringing they obeyed God's law they prayed every day they did good deeds they worshiped on the sabbath they were good moral people so what you have in this parable then is you have a father who represents God and two sons that represent basically represent the two groups of human beings on the earth today. Every human being will fall into one or the other of these two categories. You have the younger son representing the the irreligious person, the immoral person, or the sinner. And then you have the older son representing the religious, or the moral person, or simply just the good person. And while the parable certainly applies, to the sinners in Jesus' audience it was not aimed at them. It was aimed at the good people, not the bad people. It was aimed at the Pharisees who believed that only religious, good, moral people like themselves deserved an audience with a man of the cloth like Jesus. And therefore they were offended By Jesus' willingness to welcome sinners as much as He welcomed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is clear in the second half of verse 2. They said, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them? Now notice, Then Jesus told them this parable. Why? In order to correct their false belief about what God thinks about younger brothers, but also to correct their false belief about themselves. The parable Jesus first told them in response was the parable of the lost sheep, which is immediately followed by the parable of the lost coin, and both parables end with heaven rejoicing over even one sinner who repents. So both parables reveal God's love for the lost, for the immoral, for the irreligious person. To the contrary, the third parable of the trilogy reveals God's love not for the lost, immoral, irreligious, but rather for the lost moral, religious person like the Pharisee. Jesus was not only trying to change the Pharisee's heart about lost sinners, Jesus was trying to get the Pharisees to see that they too, in fact, were lost and in need of God's mercy, even though they fastidiously kept God's law. In the parable, both of the sons are lost. Both of the sons are away from the father. One runs, the other stays, but both are away and need to be reconciled to their father. One comes to realize that, the younger son, the other does not. Why? Because of his sin? No, because of his goodness. He's blinded by his own goodness. Into not being able to see his need for the mercy and the grace of God. And that is who this parable is aimed at. Now, the parable has two acts. You got Act 1, it's about the lost younger son. And you got Act 2, that's about the lost older son. And um, to experience the impact of Act 2, you really have to take a a look at Act 1. That's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together this morning. Verse 11, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided the property between them. Now, the original listeners would have been deeply offended by the manner and the timing of the younger son's request of his father. Allow me to explain. In Jesus' day, when a father died, the oldest son received a double portion of the the father's estate, and the rest of the sons divided the rest. So if a father had two sons, the oldest would receive what? Two-thirds, and the younger son would receive one-third. You're following, that's good. So what we have here, is a son who is unwilling to wait for his father to die. In essence, the younger son was saying, Father, since you are taking so long to die, go ahead and give me what's mine, and I'll be on my way. Because what I'm really interested in is not you, but your wealth. Now, this would have been perceived in that culture as the worst possible sin that could ever be Committed. This is why Jesus makes the parable this way. This is the worst sin. This is way worse than the prostitutes that he goes to out in the faraway country. This sin is worse than that. It's the worst sin. It's likely that when the Father gave him his inheritance, it took a while to do that because it was probably bound up in property and so he had to sell it all off and this of course took, took a little bit took a little while and um, maybe weeks i suppose and during this time the father endured tremendous loss of honor in the village because not only because of his son's action but because of his inaction he lost honor because he refused to do what culturally was called for to banish or cut off his son. But worse than all the dishonor really was the pain of being rejected by his son. And ordinarily, when our love is rejected, what do we do? We get angry. And we do what we can to diminish our affection for the person who has rejected us in order to minimize our pain. So the father normally would have said something you know, I, I don't know what got into that boy. I don't know what got into him, but he's certainly not uh, a Rabinowitz. I'm just grabbing a name. He, he, this is no Rabinowitz here. He's no son of mine from the day he was born. I knew he would be a disappointment. But this father's different. Even while his life is being absolutely torn apart by the actions of his son and he's in tremendous agony, he never stops loving his son. And this is God's promise to his children, Romans 8.39, nothing, not even the greatest sin shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Say nothing. Nothing. Yeah. That means in the Greek, nothing. But there's something else that's causing the father pain here, and that's the silence of the eldest son. In Middle Eastern culture, the older son would be expected to to build a bridge between the father and the estranged younger son in order to avoid public humiliation for the whole family. But instead of trying to protect the family's reputation, the older son silently, Does what? Takes his part of the inheritance. He doesn't go, Father, don't do this. Don't do this. He doesn't do that, does he? He he goes ahead and takes it. He doesn't refuse it. There's no outcry in him about his brother's actions, about his brother's sin, and nor is there a passionate defense of his father's honor. The older son simply pockets the inheritance and stays silent. And his silence was deafening. And the silence becomes even more deafening as we read at the end of, of the parable when the older son, when the father goes out to plead with the older son to come in to the celebration. And the older son, the elder son doesn't even answer him. There's just nothing but silence. Absolute silence. And it's almost like Jesus, and we'll get to this later, but it's almost like Jesus is leading these listeners here to long for or to wish for another elder brother who would selflessly intervene on behalf of the Father to reconcile the wayward son to the Father. And who is that elder brother? The Lord Jesus. See, that's where this parable is ultimately taking us. It's, going, it's taking us to the Gospel. It's reminding us once again of the Gospel and our, the ultimate elder brother. Jesus Christ. Now, verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth with wild living. And after he spent everything there, it was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went off and he hired himself to a citizen of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my fathers hired men remember that, have food to spare. And here I am, I'm starving to death. How stupid could I be? I'll set out, I added that part. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, here he goes, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher servants. So when the younger son came to himself, he comes up with a plan. He's got a plan going here. First, he'll admit he's wrong. Second, he'll uh, forfeit his right of sonship. Thirdly, he'll ask his father to make him one of his hired servants. Now, that all sounds kind of like repentance to us, but it wouldn't have been perceived by those, uh, like that by those in Jesus' audience. They would have immediately seen this as insincere repentance for three reasons. First, the younger son returns home out of what? Self-preservation. He's unable to get a paying job in the distant country, and he's starving to death, and no matter how bad things would be, Back at his father's house, it can't even be close for a Jewish man feeding a Gentile man's pigs in the field. Nothing could be worse than that. He goes home because he's starving. He doesn't say, you know, (laughs) when he came to his senses, it should say, when he came to his senses, he said to himself, what have I done to my father? Oh, how I've dishonored my father. How could I have done that? You don't see that, do you? You go, I'm starving. That's what he says. Second thing he does is he prepares an insincere confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That doesn't sound too insincere to us, but again, to the audience, especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would have known this. They would have recognized that as insincere immediately because the phrase he used, I've sinned against heaven or I've sinned against God and against you was only used one time in all of the Old Testament, and that by Pharaoh when he insincerely repented in order to manipulate Moses to stop the plagues. So that phrase became something recognized with insincere repentance or an insincere confession. Now the third reason is he negotiates the terms of its home going. He negotiates. He's not planning on repenting. You can read it. He's, he's planning on negotiating. Make me like one of your hired servants, he says. He's nego- That's negotiation right there, folks. That's like a person who after falling into sin goes, God, if you get me out of this, I swear I will do whatever you want. What's that? That's negotiation. That's not repentance. That's get me out of this mess. I promise I will change. That's not throwing yourself on God's mercy. That's, that's negotiating by making promises that are usually never kept. The son doesn't plan to throw himself on the father's mercy. He doesn't say, he's not thinking, do with me what you will. Instead, he says, do what I will. Make me a hired servant. Do what I want you to do. It's critical here, too, to see that he doesn't say make me a servant. He says make me a hired servant. If you read through that later on, you'll notice those two phrases are used. There's two different Greek words behind them. There's one that's a servant that doesn't get paid, that is on the ranch, so to speak. And then there is the hired servant who is some kind of tradesman that lives in a nearby town that every day comes out under contract to work on the ranch and then goes back into the town. It's critical to see that. So in essence, the younger son was saying to the father, set me up with a paying job so I can live away from you. The reason he left home in the first place is still true. He didn't want to be under the father's authority, did he? In the deep recesses of his heart, he didn't want to be dependent upon his father. And he could avoid that if he was what? Working for wages so he could begin ever so slightly to pay back the inheritance he squandered and maintain control of his own life. Now when we realize the callousness of the younger son, what the father does next becomes even more glorious in our sight. And it also reveals something about the love of our Father in heaven and the grace that we find in His gospel. So with all his sinful motives in tow, the younger son sets off for home to his father. But while, verse 20, he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And and he ran out to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, this was, I mean if you were there first of all in the story it totally shocks the sun but also it totally shocks the pharisees who were listening to jesus tell this parable i mean if you'd looked around the room right then all their mouths would have been like they'd just been stunned at this because remember this is the worst imaginable sin that could be committed by a Jewish man. And they were expecting the younger son to be cut off from the family, to be cut off from the village. And it was certainly what the son deserved for his actions, and it was within the prerogative of the father to do so. But he does not. Instead, he does three surprising things that are intended to reveal the father's heart for the wayward soul. First, the father, it says, was looking for the son. While the son was a long way off, his father saw him. Which implies, of course, a posture of looking for his son, anticipating his return. Secondly, when he saw him, the father ran out to his son. He doesn't wait for the son at the front door, disgusted, expecting his son to crawl on his hands and knees to grovel before him for a while. Now, what does he do? He, he runs out to his son, which in ancient Jewish culture meant that he gathered up the bottom edge of his long robe, pulled it up along a side or between his legs so as not to trip and took off running. Now, in ancient Jewish culture, children ran, teenagers ran, women ran, young men ran, but the patriarch would never run. He would never do that. It was a sign of being undignified. He would never pick up his robe and bare his legs like some schoolboy running down the street. But that's exactly what this father did. And as this father in the story runs out to reconcile his son, he becomes a picture, if you will, a symbol of God running towards us in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself through the cross. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And if he reconciled us while we were still sinners, Romans says, how much more will he restore us from a wayward heart now that we are his children? He gathers up his robe and he comes running. Not because of anything worthy in us, of course, but because of his great love, a love that is infinitely greater than all of our sin, than all of our bre- a love than all of our rebellion, a love so great that while we were sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for us." You know, the Pharisees, they complained about Jesus. They said, "This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them." And in this parable, you know Jesus, in essence, replies, "You're right. I do eat with sinners, but it's much, much worse than you ever imagined. (laughs) I not only eat with them, but like the Father in this parable, I run down the road after them, and I have compassion on them, and I throw my arms around them, and ultimately I'll do that by walking up another road for them, carrying a cross for them to die for them. third thing that reveals the father's heart in this parable is the father absorbs the son's guilt and shame in jesus day according to the ancient ancient documents including the dead Sea scrolls there was a ceremony that was prescribed um, for shaming and, and cutting off a son who lost the family inheritance to gentiles it was only to gentiles It was called the Kusatsa Ceremony. And the villagers would uh, bring a clay jar and they would fill it with burned wheat or rye. They would break it in front of the guilty individual. And while doing this, I imagine they would shout out, they would actually say something like, uh, Jacob Rabinowitz has cut off from his people. And from that point on, the villagers would have nothing to do with him. And the people listening to Jesus tell this parable were very much expecting that end. They were going, I know what the end of this story is. I know what it is. But an amazing thing happens, of course. Father runs out to embrace his son. What does that mean? That means, presumably, walks through the village. So to say, there will be no kusetza for my son. I will absorb his guilt. I will bear his shame. And instead uh, of a communal condemnation of the son, the father does what? He calls for a community celebration. A party calls for the fatted calf. He said, let's feast. Let's celebrate. And this so powerfully affects the younger son that it changes his heart and does what? Purifies his repentance. The father's Compassion and love was not a response to the Son's repentance, but rather the cause and the purifier of the Son's repentance. It's not our repentance leads to God's kindness. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness leads to our? Repentance. Right, and that kindness comes to us in Christ Jesus. So because the Father Because of the Father's kindness, this insincere confession is purified. It's made pure. And and, and how do we know that? Well, the the son leaves the negotiating out of his return speech that he's been working on for a long time, rehearsing on his way back home. He says, yeah, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but but he leaves out the part about becoming a hired servant. Did you notice that? It's not found in his speech. Why? Something's changed something in his heart has changed god's kindness has produced repentance in him and therefore he no longer wants to be apart from his father and work as a hired hand he wants to be restored to the father's house as a son he no longer wants to live by his own rules he wants to live under the authority of His loving Father. He no longer wants to be in control and try to earn back His respectability by paying off His debt. No, He wants to honor the Father who has completely bore His debt and shame. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus bore the debt and the shame that our sin deserved. And whether... Younger son rebellion or older son rebellion. We all like she are like sheep who have gone astray. Some of us more like the older son. Some of us more like the younger son. But we all dishonored the father. We all deserved to be cut off. Isaiah says we like sheep have all gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. For He was what? cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of My people. He was punished. He was cut off. In the context of the parable, Jesus on the cross took our place at the kusetsa ceremony. He bore our guilt and shame. Even though He perfectly obeyed, He was cut off By his father in our place, that we might be forgiven our sin and reconciled to our Father. He bore the cusetza for us. The Father said to his servants, quick! Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine. Notice was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now notice what the father does not say here. He doesn't say the son of mine has come home. He didn't say that, does he? He said the son of mine was what? Dead and now he's alive. He was Lost, and now he is found. So the question is, of course, who found him? Well, the answer to that is the father. He found his son while he was a long way off. He saw him. Presumably outside of the village. And up to that point, the son was heading home, but he was still lost. Did you hear that? He was still lost. Lost. And so just like the shepherd searched for and found the sheep, and just like the woman searched for and found the lost coin, the father searched for and found the son. And therefore the celebration was not primarily over the younger son coming home, but over the father finding his lost son. Over the resurrection of his son from spiritual death to life. And to celebrate that, the father calls for a uh, uh, the best robe, which would have been his. His what? This is really important. His own robe. When he calls for the best robe, there's nobody that's going to have a better robe in the family than the patriarch is going to have. and So he calls for it. His robe, and he places it. His robe, he places it on his son. It was an unmistakable sign that he had restored the son into the family. He had restored the son's standing. Essentially, the Father was saying, I'm not going to allow you to pay off your debt and to earn your way back into my good graces. Instead, I'll absorb your debt myself, and I will bear your shame, and I will take your filthy, ragged clothes, and I will clothe you with my best robe. I will take your righteousness that is like filthy rags, and I will clothe you instead with my very own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made, what? Or become the righteousness of God in Him. That we might wear His robe. In addition, the Father also gave the Son a ring and sandals, which were both similar in meaning to the robe. The ring was probably a family signet ring. It was a symbol of identity. And so it meant the son belonged. That he belonged in the father's house. Same with the sandals. Servants didn't wear sandals in those days. They went about barefooted. And so when the father calls for sandals and that to be brought out and to be placed on the son's feet, he was saying for the third time. The robe was the first one. The ring was the second. The sandals were the third. Third time that his son was not to be treated as a servant, but as a son because sonship is not something earned. It is something gifted to us by the grace of God. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 says, and then the father, then the father commanded the servants, kill the fatted calf and prepare a feast of celebration. And likely, the entire village was invited. And that was also very odd because in that society, most meals did not include meat. Why? Because meat was very, very expensive. Meat was reserved for special occasions, special parties. And the most expensive meat was the fatted calf meat. Speaks to us of God's generosity in forgiving us and reconciling us. No doubt, the news of the younger son and the extravagant party Spread quickly and soon there was a full-fledged gathering going on with music and singing and dancing, and this brings us to the close of Act 1 of the parable. And Act 1 is designed by Jesus to set up Act 2, the main point of the parable. Act 2 is not an afterthought. It's the main point, but nonetheless, Act 1 does reveal the Father's heart for all who are lost and need to come home. And upon the basis of what we had just studied and read, to all the younger sons out there and there, come home. It's time to come home to the Father's heart. There is nothing that you have done or that you can do to alienate yourself from His love. His love is far greater than your sin so great that in spite of all of our rebellion, in spite of all of our insincere repentance, in spite of all of our lack of love, He first loved us by giving up His Son for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He calls us to believe that, to believe that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for the forgiveness of any sin, to believe that His arms are wide open for you, to believe the Father wants nothing more right now than you to say in your heart, I'm going home today. I'm going home. It's been long enough, that distance between you and Him, So respond. God's mercy is coming through this parable to you. Don't waste this moment. Life is full of moments that are pivotal. You don't know when another one will come along or whether you will again feel inclined confess your sin to God and receive full forgiveness. You may have been away for many, many years. Every time you come into church, you feel guilty. So guilty you want to stay away, but you're here today, you're here, and you think that is by your choice? You're listening today because God's speaking to you through the Word, by the Spirit. Don't waste the moment. Or you may be here and you've never really believed in Christ before. You've really never crossed the line. You've never really, by faith, said I believe that Jesus died for me, for me, for my sins. He took my place. He took my kusetsa ceremony. He was cut off for me, that I would have life, that I would be reconciled to the Father. Today's that day. It's the day to come home. It's the day to start a new life, both together. I'd like to lead you in a prayer to do that. Right where you're at. You can do business with God. From our hearts. As much as possible. Let's say it together. Let's confess it together. I believe. That Jesus Christ. Died on the cross for my sin. My sin. He took my place so I could have His robe, so I could be forgiven, so I would not be cut off, so I'd be reconciled to the Father, freely by His grace. I believe He not only died for my sin, He rose from the dead to make me right with God. i believe that that. today Today. i'm a child of god God. by faith in christ jesus Jesus. Amen. amen amen tell somebody this morning you prayed that prayer you came with them they're with you maybe you didn't come and tell me tell somebody though tell somebody what the lord has done for you today and if you're watching call somebody Call somebody today. Tell them. I prayed that prayer. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? Yes. You thought you knew this parable, didn't you? I thought I knew it. Next week it's even better. So come on back. We'll see you then, okay? Let's all stand. Our prayer team will be at the front for you after the service here for a few minutes if you want prayer for anything. Somebody will be up here and agree with you. Everyone else, if you have a moment to hang out, please do so. If not, safe travels. See you next week.